Jane Green has 18, that's 1-8, New York Times bestsellers out there in the women's fiction genre and several books in development for film and TV. Her latest, Sister Stardust, is her first foray into biographical fiction, telling the story of international jet-setter Talitha Getty, wife of mega-rich heir Paul Getty, and their rock and roll life in Marrakesh in the 60s. Welcome to The Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and on Binge Reading Today, Jane talks about her fascination for Talitha, who had everything and lost it all, and offers some fascinating insights into where she sees popular fiction going in the next few years. As usual, we've got great books to give away. This week, historical books featuring strong female leaders. I've got Sadie's Vow in there, the first in my new trilogy, Home at Last. Why not download that and read it in time for the release of Susanna's Secret, book two in the series, before Christmas. You'll find all the details on the show notes for this episode at thejoysofbingereading.com. And remember, if you enjoy what you hear, add a review of the show on your favourite podcast site so others can hear about us too. But now here's Jane. Hello there, Jane, and welcome to the show. It's wonderful to have you with us. Hi, Jenny. It's great to be here. Look, you're a top woman's fiction author. There's no disputing that. You've got 18 New York Times bestsellers and 10 million books in print. But this latest book is just a slight change in direction for you. It's still very much women's fiction, but it is a bio fiction. It's based on a real person story. And that person is Talitha Getty, one of the Paul Getty wives. And it's based in Marrakesh in the late 60s. Now, what attracted you to this story and to slightly change in your direction? Well, actually, I'm to slightly change in your direction. I joined a new publisher, HarperCollins, and I was all set to write a sequel to The Beach House. And then out of nowhere, my new editor suddenly said, Jane, have you ever thought of doing historical fiction? And I immediately thought of World War II books because I know a ton of authors who write World War II books. But I have spent my whole life slightly obsessed with this woman, Talita Getty, after seeing a photograph of her when I was a teenager. Who And she's incredibly beautiful and very glamorous. And she was crouching on a rooftop in Marrakesh in this beautiful embroidered caftan. And I said to him, historical fiction, do the 60s count? And because he's 12 years old, he said yes. And so I thought well, I really would love to know more about this woman because she was a muse of Yves Saint Laurent. She was married to the son of the richest man in the world. She was best friends with the Rolling Stones. And yet she died very tragically, very young of a heroin overdose. And there's very little written about her. So her whole life was something of a mystery. So this gave me the opportunity to do the deep dive and really find out about her. Yes. Now, as you say, 
historical fiction definitely does now start in the 1960s, which for some of us who were in their teens in the 1960s seems a bit strange, but it does. <laughs> and World War II books must almost be reaching their peak because they've been popular for so long now. And quite a number of people have chosen this niche of 60s and particularly music-related fiction. I'm thinking of people like Taylor, who did, I can't even remember the book now, but hey, the one that's... Daisy Jones and the Six, Taylor yeah. Jenkins, yeah. and then Malibu Rising, and Jessica Anya Blau did Mary Jane. There have been lots of books about the 60s, but interestingly, they've been very American. So they're very much Laurel Canyon or Malibu, obviously as you can hear from my accent, I'm a naturalised American, but I was born and brought up in London. And I was born in the 60s. But my vision of the 60s, my version of the 60s, the stories that I grew up hearing from my parents were all London based. And the European 60s was very different. In America, it was all the hippies and Summer of Love and Woodstock and Hate ashbury and San Francisco. Whereas in Europe, it was much more the influences came from India and Asia and North Africa, particularly. So it was a very different kind of 60s. And of course, you had London bursting into colour and becoming the epicentre of the psychedelic 60s with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, who were the gods of that time. Yes. Now, as we've mentioned, the Rolling Stones feature quite prominently in it. And I did wonder if you prepared a playlist for the book. You've mentioned a lot of music in it. You obviously have done a lot of research into the music of the Rolling Stones and the 60s generally. Did you love that part of it? Yeah, it was huge fun, actually. I made a soundtrack, which is in fact available on Spotify. So if you go onto Spotify and put in Sister Stardust under playlists, you'll find the Sister Stardust playlist, which is actually all the music that I listened to while I was writing this to keep me in the mood. And it's really music from 1966 to 1971. And it's specifically the music that was in the charts in England and also music that I know that Talita Getty was listening to at that time. She really liked Dolly Parton. I found that sort of fascinating and unexpected. So how do you know that she was listening to that music? Did you manage to get hold of letters or diaries or some very personal reference point for knowing that? I did speak to a couple of people who were very close with her, although most people didn't want to revisit the past. It was really hard actually getting people to talk. I also think because she died so young and so tragically and her husband was somehow culpable in her death. I think the family closed ranks, which is why I think there's so little known about her. So I had to come at it sideways. And I made lists and lists of anybody who might have come into contact with her or anybody who was ever photographed with her or mentioned with her. And then I read everything about them. And it was really like searching for a needle in a haystack. And every now and then I'd stumble upon a paragraph or a page and sometimes a few pages in somebody else's book and it was just glorious and it took almost a year and by the end of that research I really felt that I had a very good sense of who she was. Yes, yes. Tell us a little bit about the circumstances of her death. She had been clean of the heroine she claimed for quite a period of time but then yes. she went back to visit her husband and 
very suddenly died of an overdose and he basically fled out of the jurisdiction. So he escaped really being questioned on it, didn't he? Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, there are a few accounts of her death. Her last couple of years, she had a baby in 1968, which brought on thyroid problems that she was struggling with. She was struggling with terrible depression. Not that you'd ever know, because actually... I think really the thing with Talita is she was brought up in the Dutch East Indies in the prison camps after the Japanese invaded. And it was terribly traumatic because the guards would torture the children. And I think she carried that trauma with her. And her drug of choice was really people. She couldn't bear to be on her own. And she always surrounded herself with people and parties. So you wouldn't necessarily have known, but they separated, she and her husband, after she had the baby. And he was living in Rome. And she went back to their wonderful house in Chelsea, in in London, in Cheney Walk. And the story that I have heard that feels like it's the most likely is that she was clean. Heroin was never a big problem for her anyway. It was really her husband, Paul, who was the heroin addict. Alcohol was much more her thing. She knew that she loved him, but I think she also knew that he would destroy her. She flew to Rome to serve him with divorce papers. But one version of the story is that she actually tried to seduce him and he rejected her. And she then went into a bedroom in his apartment and took a huge heroin overdose. And he at the time was so deep in his addiction that he didn't know. And that's the thing, that he was an addict and he was struggling himself. And there were people in and out the apartment all night long. And he kept looking in on her and thought she was sleeping when in fact she was dying. And by the time they realised it, it was too late. But yes, Italy at the time had a mandatory 10-year sentence for possession of heroin. So he left and never returned as far as I know. Yeah, very sad. The rest of your work very much deals with family issues, people struggling with life's challenges. And I'm thinking of a recent one, the Sunshine Sisters, about a narcissistic mother who has alienated her three daughters. But as she faces a serious illness at the end of her life, she has this urge to call on them for help and try and get the family all rallied together again. And it's a wonderful way to start a story. And a lot of your stories have been those kinds of stories, haven't they? Yeah, I'm really in human nature and why we do the things we do and I'm interested in the dark sides and also this whole concept of not knowing what goes on behind closed doors and that we so often think that other people have easier better I don't know more lavish or whatever it is but better lives than we do and actually we never know so I quite like opening those closed doors, yeah. taking a look at what's really going on. And it's often quite dark and quite difficult and traumatic. And I like helping my protagonists overcome adversity and overcome the challenges of their childhood to carve out some version of a peaceful life for themselves. Fantastic. Look, 10 million books sold, 18 18- New York Times bestsellers. How did you actually get started on this road? I was a journalist and I was working for the Daily Express in the UK. And a friend of mine out of nowhere wrote a book and suddenly wrote, phoned me up one night to say that she had a publishing deal. And I remember thinking, hang on, she's not even a writer. She's not a historian. I'm a writer. If she can do it, I can do it. And I just thought, I'm going to do this as well. 
and I my first book was called Straight Talking and it was I, at the time I'd just written Nick Hornby's book High Fidelity and it was a book that seemed to be the story of every single 30-something man I knew. And I thought, no one's doing this for women, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to write about my life and my girlfriends. Of course, little did I know that Helen Fielding was sitting in her flat in Ladbroke Grove, about a mile up the road from me, writing Bridget Jones's diary. But I was very lucky because that book was such a huge success that my first book came out about three months later, and the press seized upon this and said, oh, this is a new genre. This is chiclet. Yes. You knew which way the wind was blowing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was very lucky. I wish I knew which. Actually, I think I do know which way the wind is blowing, which isn't necessarily great for books, but storytelling will continue. Absolutely, storytelling will. And that leads us back to your historical fiction. Do you think you'll do any more historical fiction? I actually have, interestingly, a podcast coming out on October the 13th which is a scripted fiction series and it's wow. yeah it's set in 1979 and it's a standalone but you don't have to have read Sister Stardust to enjoy this but it's actually about a rock star couple who featured in Sister Stardust it, it, it's about Eddie Albright and Lissy Ellery who now have a son and they live in Sleepy Hollow New York and it's 1979 so it's Studio 54 and Disco but it's absolute chaos and Lissy is diving into drugs and black magic and it all ends in a terrible trend and that's called Rainbow Girl and actually that's on, on amazon.com slash rainbow girl or wherever you listen to podcasts you can follow it now fantastic and how many episodes there are six half hour episodes and we have a full cast of actors and it's really exciting because it's a new way of telling stories and I am passionate about podcasts so thank you very much for inviting me to be on your show and I think that we are all so busy now I find it much harder to set aside the time to watch tv show or read a book whereas podcasts accompany me where Ever I go and whatever I do, if I'm cleaning, if I'm walking, if I'm driving, if I'm ironing, I'm always listening to podcasts. And we're bringing fiction to podcasts, female driven fiction to podcasts. Yeah. And when you say we, who, who is doing it with you? Ah, so I have actually been brought in to partner on running a podcast network called Emerald Audio. Oh, wow. So I've taken my writer's cap off for a while and I'm I'm back in business and, and finding and producing these fantastic fiction series, a bit like the old fashioned radio plays yes. that we grew up with, but serialized. And it's lovely and I'm having a blast fantastic that does actually morph beautifully into I was going to ask you about your lifestyle brand because I guess as your life moved on you start with the chiclet but now you're very much a family person with a family and you've got a following as a lifestyle brand in your own right with your cooking and your gardening and you've got a wonderful entry in your on your website about your home which you call Figless Manor and explain why it's called Figless Manor. Tell us how all of that evolved. Well, I think I'm just a natural nester. I'm really a homebody. I don't like leaving my house. And that means that wherever I live, I have to create something that is 
not only very beautiful because I, I do a bit of beauty around me, but also very warm and cosy. I'm all about the cosy. And in fact, Figless Manor was a house that we built a few years ago, but now we are in the mouse house. All our homes have ridiculous names because they make me laugh. But the mouse house is called the mouse house because it's just teeny tiny. We are in a teeny tiny little beach cottage but because I don't like leaving my home very much what I do is I gather the people I love in my home and I feed them and I feed them the kinds of food that makes them feel nurtured and safe and loved and honestly I'm not trying to be an influencer but I've just over the years I've posted all these pictures on Instagram and I've ended up with I don't know, a huge number of followers who just like the way I live. And I'm quite outspoken as well. I was born with the honesty gene. And so I'm quite, I'm quite authentic. And I'm not afraid to also discuss aging and the things that I'm going through that I'm thinking about and reading about and writing about, whether it's like letting my grey hair come in, which I did two years ago. And also how... I wrote a piece last week in the Daily Mail about how having grey hair is so fascinating. I expected to be invisible to men, but I didn't expect to be invisible to women. And what's happened during COVID is we've had this huge surge of young, I call them the yummy mummies, all the yummy mummies from New York City who are all kind of 29 and 31 and they're babies really. And they've all moved to town. And I feel like before I turned grey, I'd still get a once over in a restaurant. I'd still get a, oh, she's cool. Or, oh, what's she wearing? What are her boots? Now they don't even see me. I may as well be wearing Harry Potter's invisibility cloak. So I wrote a piece about that last week because I'm just fascinated by all of that. Do you, do you mind? Sometimes I do, but I also absolutely adore getting older. I'm 54 and this is my favourite decade yet. I'm loving my 50s because of the freedom it gives you. And I think when I turned 50, I spent so much of my life feeling that I wasn't good enough and trying very hard to fit in. And actually, when I turned 50, I remember so clearly thinking, you've got to figure this out, Jane. Now you're 50. Figure out who the hell are you and what kind of a life do you want to lead? And I realised that not only do I not fit in. I don't want to fit in, actually. I spent all those years like buying the clothes that everybody else wore and trying so hard. And now I'm like, God, I love wearing my kind of funky flares and my ridiculous clothes. And I like standing out. And I love the 60s and the 70s. And I'd much rather be in something vintage. And I'm passionate about Morocco. And also, I don't feel the need to please anybody anymore. And I don't really care if you don't like me. It's fine. Go do your thing. So I find it very liberating. I'm really loving this decade. That's wonderful. And just looking back to Marrakesh, and you mentioned that you really like to be at home. I was going to ask you if you went to Marrakesh to research Sister Stardust. I gather because you love Morocco, perhaps you did. That was one of the exceptions you're happy to make from getting away from home. Yes, we did. We went to Morocco. My parents actually are there pretty much every winter and finally we managed to get out and go and see them and we just had the most wonderful time I knew I was going to love it I loved it long before I visited and I also understood as soon as I walked through the gates into the old city and the smells and it's like this feast for the senses the smells and the sights and 
the spices and it's very raw and it just it felt it felt to me like the most alive place I'd ever been and so I really understood how the Gettys lived this incredibly hedonistic exotic life in the late 60s there it just all made sense yeah that sounds great turning to away from talking about the books a little bit and your life to your taste in books because this is the binge reading podcast you a binge reader or have you been a binge reader and when you get the time what do you like to read now and actually also I'd like to just add in tell us some of the podcasts you listen to because it sounds like you are quite an aficionado of podcasts yes now I'm loving podcasts what are some of my favorites I listen to a fascinating one recently called Good Assassins, The Butcher of Latvia, which is based on a true story of a Nazi war criminal that was hiding in South America, except he was an aviation war hero before the war. And his narcissism and his ego wouldn't let him hide quietly. And he ended up giving giving an interview to a South American magazine that he didn't realise at the time was the most widely distributed magazine in South America, which, of course, fell straight into the hands of the Mossad in Israel, who immediately dispatched an agent to go and assassinate him. It's the most fantastic story, really satisfying and brilliantly done. What else have I really enjoyed? There's my favourite. I do love a bit of true crime, and I really love this one called The Root of Evil, which was actually produced by Cadence 13. And that those are the people who founded Cadence 13 are my partners now. And it's a very dark and twisted tale about one of Hollywood's most famous unsolved murders. They call it the Black Dahlia murder of a woman who was found cut in half in the 1940s. And it's fascinating, very dark and twisted, but I loved it. And in terms of books, I have spent my whole life being a huge reader. I was a child who didn't fit in. I became a writer because I was a reader. I would lose myself in books for hours and and have done my whole life. But I will say throughout COVID, I found my attention span is so much less. And I was diving into TV shows instead. And it's still mortifyingly hard for me to get back. There are writers that I adore. Jean Hanf Korolitz is one who wrote the plot last year, now has the latecomer. A.M. Holmes, I absolutely adore. May We Be Forgiven is one of my favourites. She has a new book out called The Unfolding. But I've got to be honest, I'm finding it hard to read in the way that I used to. Do you have any idea why that might be? Obviously, it's not just COVID. I think it's our attention span. I think we're, we spend all our lives on screen. And I find my days now that I'm running a podcast network, I've gone from being by myself all day for days and days, weeks on end. And I quite love being by myself. I've gone from that to being on back to back Zoom calls all day long. It's just Mm. meetings, Zoom, Zoom meetings. And then you're checking on email and then you're checking on social media. And it's this constant swirl of activity. And I think our brains are being rewired and our attention spans are much shorter. And it's why I'm so interested in bringing stories to the podcast world, because I think the future really is in audio, sadly. And also, look, publishing is so hard now. It's so difficult. It is. When I first started, which was... 27 years ago my only job was to write the best book I could possibly write and then go out on tour and sell it in as best a way I could 
Now my job is to write that book, to sell it, still that, and also to be my own marketing director, to run all my own social media accounts, to be, do my own publicity, to call in every contact I have, to set up my own book tours, to buy swag for the bookstagram influencers. In the run up to, to the launch of Sister Stardust, I was working 19, 20 hour days. I was exhausted. I was demoralized. I cried almost every day. And I just thought, how can you be creative? You can't. There's no way you can't create when you're expected to do everything. And that's what your life is. Now, perhaps it's different for the millennials and for younger people when that's all you know. Perhaps that's fine. But I come from a very different world. And there was absolutely nothing fun about this. And you go to your publisher and you say, look, would you just pay for that? And they say, no, we're already over budget. And you just go, why am I doing this? For 10, 15% of every book, working the way I'm working, no way. There's a, what's the point? What's mm. the point? The model is broken, I think, isn't it? The business yeah, model. Yeah, yeah. Unless you're in the 1%. And you know what? I spent years in the 1% and it was glorious. And I'm very fortunate in that I have this huge brand name. But my sales, through a number of missteps that I have made, primarily changing agents and just being with wrong agents, but I've watched my numbers sink and it's just too hard. It's too hard. I've had the glory and I don't see how I do it these days, given how publishing is being run. I'm delighted to have moved into the podcast world. Now, if I had another story that I was desperate to tell, would I write another book? possibly look I have a novel right now that I adore I think it's one of the best novels I've ever written but I wouldn't give it to a publisher right now because I don't believe that they'd publish it properly so you could self-publish you obviously have considered that I have but I think at this point I'd rather bring it out as some kind of an audio maybe an yeah. audio book I was just going to ask you about audio books actually because I find myself that I listen to a lot more audio these days partly it's just very tiring to try and read at night as well if you've had a busy day and you're trying to read at night you just fall asleep over the book even if it's a good one whereas with audio it seemed easier to just keep going with the story yeah audio books are growing enormously and that's the thing we're all moving to audio whether it's yep. audio books whether it's podcasts but that is where the world is moving and I honestly think that you don't realize how demoralizing it is or how hard it is to have no support from a publisher because you get used to it after a while it becomes your new normal yes. and you just think this is the way it is now but actually having made the jump into the podcast world it's like the wild west out there but it's so exciting because nobody quite knows what they're doing and I've got a team 22 people who come from Apple and Spotify who have very deep roots in the industry are enormously experienced and they're supportive and so I can say look I've got this brilliant idea for a story for a series and they go okay outline it and then suddenly it's being made and we're attaching a script writer and then I've got a marketing team and I have PR people and I have those teams of support that I used to have in publishing I have again in the podcast world yes Yes, fabulous. So look, there's, a, there's one question I like to ask everyone, and it seems in the light of what we've just been discussing, that it's particularly relevant. Looking back down the tunnel of time, is there one thing about your creative career that you change if you could? 
although it seems to me like your flow just might be just exactly natural and right for the time. But what would is there anything you'd change? Yeah, I am so happy with where I am right now. So in that sense, no, because everything needed to happen the way it did. That door had to close in order for me to get out because they always paid me far too much money for me to leave. But actually, I think the worst decision I made and the thing that I would change would be what 10 years ago, I'd had an agent in the UK who I'd had for 20 years, I absolutely adored him. And we were a real partnership. And there was complete transparency. If ever he had a phone call that I wasn't in on, he'd phone me up afterwards and said, say, this is that, what do you think? And we'd figure it out together. And I'd call him up with ideas for all kinds of other side hustles, and he'd make it happen. 10 years ago, I thought, I'm now living in America. I am an American. I'm never moving back to the UK permanently. I really ought to have an American agent. And also, at that time, I hadn't had a movie and I really wanted a movie. And somebody introduced me to one of the big Hollywood agencies and they wooed me with, oh, we're going to we're going to make so many movies and TV shows. And And I really didn't want to leave my agent. But I thought, no, this is the right thing for my career. And actually what I didn't understand at the time, and I've now had a number of different agents over the years in America, and they all share this in common. They agent very differently in America than they do in the UK. In the UK, it's a partnership. In America, you're infantilized and you're handled. You're seen as the talent and you're handled, and there's this sort of terrible fear of transparency or bad news. And I also think they want to keep you out of the business side because otherwise I think they worry that they wouldn't get their percentages. And so I went from having a partner and running my own career to being treated like a child and not being listened to at all. And so the last decade, I've really been quite powerless over my career. And that's the thing that that I would change. Yeah, because um, I love the business side of it. I really do. And that's also part of the joy of running a network. It's not just that I'm creating stories. I'm running a network and I'm back in business and I'm reminded, oh, my God, I actually am quite good at this. For the last 10 years, I thought I was terrible because that was the sort of messaging from the agents. You don't know what you're doing, Jane. You're the talent. Leave it to us. And meanwhile... They're doing nothing. And what's also interesting, I'm now talking to agents who are representing talent. And it is so clear to me how so often they they screw it up. Then the person that ends up suffering is the author. Yeah. It has been mentioned on your website that you've had a number of books that are under development for either TV or film. Have any of those come to fruition or look like coming to fruition? Yeah. A few years ago, I had three of them turned into movies for lifetime but I think that's it for now I think all the options are now are now out so nothing right now yeah look it's been wonderful talking I know that you've given us a very good idea about what your future 12 months are going to look like but perhaps I could ask you what do you hope to see you your particular thing you'd like to see achieved by the end of this next 12 month period oh goodness just in your career where you are now Yeah, I think that I would love to have at least one and hopefully three huge hit podcasts. And I would hope as well that at least one of those podcasts is 
I mean, by in, in within twelve months, I would hope to have made at least six major podcast series, and I would hope that some of them have been picked up for film and TV. That would be my hope. Wonderful. Do you enjoy interacting with your audience wherever they might be, and how can people find you? I absolutely love it. I'm not always great at it. I try very hard. I, my most favourite of all is live. I love events. I love meeting my readers live. I'm on Facebook, and I think on Facebook, I'm facebook.com author Jane Green. And Instagram also, I'm very active on Instagram, and there I'm Jane Green author. And you can follow all my adventures with books, podcasts, grey hair, cats, cooking and decorating houses. Now, you haven't mentioned the Jane Green Book Club. Just tell us a little bit about that, Ian. That's because I'm not very good. This is the problem with being quite mercurial is I <laughs> often have great ideas and I start them and then I get distracted and forget about them. But yes, on Facebook, there is the Jane Green Book Club. But days I am not so active on that. But it was lovely when I first started it and I'd bring authors and have live chats with them. Now, I will say there are other people doing it brilliantly adriana trigiani is on facebook and she does fantastic book chats wade rouse does fantastic book chats for women it's uh, who is it mary Kay andrews patty callahan and and Kristen harmel and i can't remember the fourth but they have friends and fiction on facebook and they have tons of authors on so there are lots and lots of people doing it so i feel like i can happily pass the Button. Yes. And are you live anywhere then on Facebook now? Am I live? What do you mean? Yeah. Do you have live meetings with your readers and listeners? I sometimes do Instagram live. Okay. Yeah. You know what? I'm much better with a partner. I always find it a bit weird talking to camera by yourself, but people often ask to interview me and do an Instagram live, which I'll happily do. But it's quite hard to for me to just look at a screen and chat lovely jane look you've been a fantastic guest to have on the show wonderful the way that you've shared your life you have been transparent with us as just in the way that you've been talking about just wonderful to have you on the show thank you so much thank you so much jenny next week on binge reading we've got an encore episode that's one of our authors who's been on the show before talking about their latest book. And next week, it's Gillian Cantor. She was last on the show in July 2021 talking about Half-Life, the Marie Curie story. Now she's back with another change of pace, a book that Kate Quinn has described as Gillian Cantor beautifully recrafts an American classic, placing the woman of the great Gatsby center stage. That's Beautiful Little Falls, where the female characters of The Great Gatsby take over the story and tell it from their point of view. Next week on Binge Reading. Remember, now, if you enjoy what you hear, add a review to the show on your favourite podcast site so others will hear about us too. That's it for today. Thanks for being here and see you next week. Happy reading! Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. 
And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Bye.